The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them as light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Becca. We are today beginning a three-part series in Advent. Um, I wonder, when I say the word Advent, what comes to mind for you? Um, maybe it is chocolate calendars. Um, my kids have opened their chocolate calendar this morning. I'm not convinced there's still 23 chocolates left after two days. But, you know, if they can work out how to get in them without opening the little doors, then fair enough. Um, <laughs> Perhaps, though, Advent makes you think of Christmas lights, maybe um, choir practices. The Oasis Choir is sounding better every week, I can assure you. Maybe it's last-minute panic shopping, maybe Christmas movies like Die Hard, um, <laughs> or, or others. Uh, maybe adverts on TV. Advent has become a very commercial season, a time when it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, and there's plenty of markets. There's more where that came from. Uh, and there's plenty of markets and bargains to occupy our credit cards, and also plenty of upbeat sentiments exchanged on Christmas cards. But Advent in the Christian tradition is quite different to this. It's radically countercultural. It's not sentimental. It's not walking in a winter wonderland, or walking in the air for that matter. Advent is not about closing your eyes to the troubles of the world and escaping to a haven of tinsel-laden optimism and therapeutic shopping. It's not that. Advent is actually radically realistic. Uh, don't get me wrong. Advent is certainly about hope, but it is hope in the face of our desperate condition. It's not eyes shut, but eyes open to the darkness we find ourselves in. Fleming Rutledge is an Anglican minister in the States, and she's just written, recently written a book on Advent. And she says that Advent is the season of hope in the midst of hopelessness. She continues, if there was no hopelessness, there would be no need for hope. So Advent is actually a very sober time. 
It's a time to recognize our desperate need and acknowledge the trouble that surrounds us and our hopelessness to save ourselves. It's a time of sober judgment, and yet it is a time of wonderful hope. Hope located, though, entirely outside of ourselves and in the gracious promises of God. Hope in the midst of hopelessness, as was conveyed in that video. Because, of course, after Advent comes Christmas. He came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all. And Christmas comes in a burst of glad tidings and great joy, and it should be received with singing and with feasting and with color. But Advent is not about pretending Christ has not come until December 25th. He has come already. Rather, as well as looking back to Jesus' birth, Advent is about, and Jesus' birth changed everything. Advent is also perhaps even more than that, about looking ahead to when he will return. When, as the creed says, he will come again in glory, judge the living and the dead. Every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess, Jesus, Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. And that is good news of great joy for all the people. Just as was proclaimed by the angels 2,000 years ago, he is the one who was and is and is to come. His life and death and resurrection, which happened in time and space, has begun new creation. And the new creation will flood the universe, bringing an end to all tears and suffering and sin and evil and death, as described in Revelation chapter 21. And then God's dwelling will be with mankind. Heaven on earth. Because Jesus has already come once, we know that that time will come. But for now, we wait in expectation. Now we find ourselves in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And so we live in that tension of the now and the not yet. The rejoicing and the longing. Divine hope in the midst of human hopelessness. And so Advent begins in the dark. And according to Rutledge, we need a good dose of the dark in the church to counteract the falsity of the season of madness outside. And for some of us, that's a great relief. Because for some of us, the festive season brings pain because of loss and loneliness and disappointment. I know for many of you, this festive season has begun with struggle and sadness. I get the privilege of knowing what goes on in in our lives. And those things are real and they are not trivial, but they are not final. Advent can be like a balm for you because it occupies a place of tension between present pain and future glory. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to embrace that tension of Advent together, along with thousands of churches all around the world, as has happened for 2,000 years. And over each week, we're going to focus on a particular aspect of the Advent season. So this really is a three-part series, not three standalone talks. So journey with us. Today we're going to look at 
facing darkness. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? The kind of sober reality of our condition. And next week, we're going to look at seeing light, the bright promises given in Christ. And then in two weeks' time, we're going to look at waiting expectantly, how our daily lives now can be glimmers of light that signpost to what's to come. Okay? That's where we're going. But Advent begins in the dark. A little while ago, Becca read out from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC, 800 years before Christ. And the book of Isaiah collates his prophecies. And it's an amazing book. I've been totally captivated by it these last few days. It's absorbing. It's both tragic and glorious. Isaiah truly captures hope in the midst of hopelessness. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. And that is a really good summary of his ministry and of that book. At the time of Isaiah's ministry, God's people were surrounded by darkness. The darkness of external oppression from an aggressive and ungodly political enemy or enemies, particularly the Assyrians. But also the darkness of their own sin, the hypocrisy of God's people, and in particular the neglect of the poor and the vulnerable. In fact, as Isaiah 9 is set at the time of King Ahaz, the king of Judah, he was not a good egg. He was a bad king. He was impressed by the Assyrian way of life, and so he adopted some of their pagan religious practices, including child sacrifice, even his own child. It was an evil time in history. And I imagine it would have been easy to wonder, where is God? Have his promises failed? Everything is such a mess. And it was into that situation that Isaiah speaks God's word. He speaks of judgment on that way of life. Judgment on the destructive, dehumanizing evil that was so prevalent both within and outside of the people of God. In God's good world, such things have no place. And so he calls the people to repent or they'll perish. And yet also throughout Isaiah comes the bright promise of God that he will act on behalf of his people, that he will remove their guilt, he will turn around and put things right, he will be faithful. He will act through the promised Messiah, the Christ. The Messiah will come and he will be what they are not, God's perfect image bearer. And through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. So in Isaiah 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them a light has shone. It it was dark in Isaiah's day. But God speaks into that darkness, just as Rich um, pointed us to earlier. God speaks this time through the prophet, a word of promise. Divine light will break in. There'll be a time of rejoicing. The rod of the oppressor will be broken. It will be like the great victories of old, as when God delivered his people from the Midianites in the time of Gideon. You can read about that in Judges chapter 6 to 8. Back then, Israel were helpless and hopeless too. 
and thought that God had abandoned them. Back then, they could do nothing to save themselves. Back then, God came, the angel of the Lord, bringing a saving word of promise. Back then, God acted on their behalf, rescuing them out of darkness and oppression. And back then, it was not because of their faithfulness, but because God is faithful. He always is true to his word. He brings rescue. And Isaiah is saying, he'll do it again. He'll do it again. His light will dispel the darkness. Fast forward 800 years, and Isaiah's words resound loudly. It was a land of deep darkness into which Jesus was born. The poor and vulnerable were again being mistreated and oppressed by religious leaders who did not represent God. There was another oppressive foreign rule in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. This time the Romans, who had brutal control over the people. There were multiple failed uprisings amongst the Jews, religious factions and bickering, much fear, much distress, little hope. Into that context, light. The word of God comes again, this time in the flesh. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. The, um, I am actually in the choir, but that's <laughs> less, less of a tenor, more of a bass. The promise that came through, the, through Isaiah arrived in Bethlehem. Light into darkness, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. More on that later. But fast forward 2,000 years, how about our time? What surrounds us? Well, the word of the prophet is just as relevant for us today. That's why it's scripture, it's timeless. There are, in many ways, dark times that we face. Perhaps you wonder, where is God? Let's just for a moment face the darkness. You know, the Oxford English Dictionary chooses a word of the year each year. And um, it's a word that, and I quote, reflects the ethos mood or preoccupations of that particular year, and a word thought to have lasting potential as a word of cultural significance. What's the word of 2018? The word is toxic. It's the word chosen by the Oxford English Dictionary. 2018, toxic, dark. And then they go on to list some associations with that word. So one of the associations they list is chemical, because it's been a year where there have been toxic chemical weapons used in order to further a particular cause. The second word on the list is masculinity. Masculinity and toxic put together. It's a dark world where that happens. The other associations, environment, because we're causing a toxic effect on our environment. Relationships is another association, and culture. It's a dark world where that word becomes so representative of life at the moment. We're also in a time of economic and political uncertainty. It feels dark like in the bleak midwinter. We're wondering, how's it all going to pan out? Brexit. No one knows what's going to happen. We only know that nobody can agree what the right way to go is. 
Can't even agree what TV channel to hold a debate on. It's a dark world when that's the case. We live in a time of exhausted and overstretched public services. Our healthcare and our education system on its knees. And those working in them just trying to keep their head above water. We live in a time where there's disconnection and loneliness. The British Red Cross released a study just um, a week or so ago interviewing 4,000 people. And one in five of the people they interviewed said they have no close friends at all. And over one-third said they often feel alone. That's a dark world. We've seen a huge loss of mental health across the population. The British Medical Journal released an editorial in June 2018 which announced adolescent mental health in crisis. There's been a five-fold increase in UK university students disclosing mental health problems over the past 10 years. There's a an increase in knife crime in London that's been rampant. There's been a, a rise in nationalism throughout the last couple of years, with some of the most powerful leaders in the world peddling nationalistic, self-interest, self-interested rhetoric, which has no relation to truth. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year in 2016 was post-truth. A world of post-truth and fake news. It's a dark world. There's a humanitarian crisis in Yemen at the moment, but we don't hear much about it because we've washed our hands somewhat of it. Civil war is ravaging the country, and some countries in the West are arming one side of that conflict. The UN reports that Yemen is on the brink of the world's worst man-made humanitarian disaster. In fact, 75% of the 22 million population are thought to be in need of humanitarian aid, and 8.4 million are at risk of starvation. There's an outbreak of cholera, and lots of young people are dying. Just last week, it was Black Friday. Okay, bargain day. It's become a bit of a phenomenon. And there was a video released on social media, I don't know if you saw it, And on the one hand, it pictured the doors of certain supermarkets and and kind of outlets opening, and the crowd of people rushed in, and there was pushing, and there was shoving, and there was grabbing whatever they could, bargain-wise, from the shelves. And that image was juxtaposed with the image of where clothes and toys and things are being made. And there's an image of a, a woman sat at a showing machine with her baby lying on the floor in abject poverty. Greed, poverty. There's an increasing number of homeless in our local area. It seems like every time I go to a supermarket, there's someone there who's not got a home, just sat by the door. And it's our privilege to get to know their name and to see what we can do in that moment to show some kindness but there's an increasing number of people like that. We find ourselves in a land of darkness, but this present darkness is not someone else's problem. It's ours, and we're not exempt from it. In many ways, we're complicit. It's very easy to think it's us and them, 
We're not responsible, so we can wash our hands. But, folks, we are caught up in systems and ways of life that exploit the vulnerable, badly steward the environment, make the rich richer and the poor poorer, and much of the time, we are oblivious to it, but I wonder whether sometimes we're just a bit uninterested in that fact, because it works for us. Isaiah came to realize his complicity with the evil of the people he belonged to. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read of his encounter with the Lord of glory. And actually, in in John's gospel, chapter 12, it tells us, or at least implies strongly, that that was Jesus who he saw, Isaiah, 800 years B.C. And when Isaiah sees the Lord of glory, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees himself implicated in the sins of the people. Darkness is not just around him, it's within him. And it is for us too. We're not exempt. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all of us have those besetting sins that we're conscious of that we just struggle to shake off. And all of us find ourselves caught up in ungodly evil systems that exist throughout the world, exploiting the poor, the vulnerable, and the voiceless. So clothing produced from terrible working conditions, inhumane treatment of animals in food production, banking systems that make the rich richer and the poor poorer, medications developed from embryo research. We're caught in present darkness, and we cannot cleanse ourselves. It's too big for us. We cannot chase away our own darkness. It's not not that we're passive. In two weeks' time, we'll look at some of our response and what that might begin to look like, lights in the darkness. Even my my daughter, Chloe, the last time we saw, one of the last times we saw a homeless person, we'd given them something to eat and had a chat with them and got to know the name. And then as we were leaving, she started pronouncing a blessing over her. You know, um, church leader kid. Um, so she, because um, at night we do this thing when I say, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you and give you peace. It's an ancient Christian blessing. And she started doing it to this dear lady as she left. And her eyes welled up. And, a few, and then a week or so later, we saw her again. She hadn't forgotten Chloe. That's not to put my child on a pedestal. Believe me, that would not be appropriate. <laughs> but it's lights in the darkness, and we'll hear more about that. We're caught up in present darkness. And we, like Isaiah, need the action of God on our behalf. It's too much for us. Yet God did act for Isaiah. He did. In Isaiah 6, you can read it. He took the prophet's guilt away and atoned for his sin. God acted. God cleansed Isaiah and then commissioned him to speak on his behalf. So the astonishing thing is that Isaiah became aware of sin even as he was already held in the gracious intention of holy God. His confession didn't change God's mind towards him. His confession was possible because God had already drawn towards him in gracious intent. 
Like Isaiah, the awareness of our sin comes simultaneously with the promise of the Lord to act graciously on our behalf. The call for us this Advent is to repent. That's what Advent's about. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of John the Baptist. You don't kind of see his face pop up in Advent calendars, but he is an Advent prophet. (laughs) Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this Advent season of preparation for the Lord's coming, our repentance is possible because of the sure and certain promise we've already received from God. He acts on our behalf. It is precisely because the kingdom of heaven is drawn near that we're able to repent with joy and embrace it. He draws near God with us. Our hope is outside ourselves. Hope in the midst of hopelessness. A God who breaks the rod of the oppressor as on the day of Midian. And so Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, Religion is not the answer to our problem. Religion is essentially man-made. It is projected out of our wishes, our longings, our spiritual capacities. Advent reminds us human incapacity is the condition in which we find ourselves. Our inability to gain any lasting victory over, of light over darkness. So what hope is there? She continues... The light that shines in the darkness is not the light of religion, not even the light of religious faith. It is the uncreated light, not part of this darkened sphere at all, not bound by it, not contiguous or continuous with it, not limited by it, not projected from it, not existent with it, but rather God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not created. Jesus is our hope. Unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. There is hope in our darkness. Let's remind ourselves of how the Apostle John opens up his gospel, even as Becca comes and lights a candle for us. John says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yeah, that's appropriate. Even if the baby did cry, that's still appropriate. (laughs) At Jesus' birth, there was great darkness. Herod plotted to kill him. But darkness could not overcome the light. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there was darkness encountered. Demonic forces oppressing people, The religious leaders opposing his teaching, but darkness could not overcome the light. At the cross of Christ, darkness gathered as never before. All the powers of evil surrounded him, and all the destructive force of human sin was laid on him. 
and darkness had its hour. Even the afternoon sun was covered by darkness, Matthew tells us, as Jesus was hung on the cross. But the darkness could not overcome the light because a word came forth from within that darkness on the cross as Jesus declared, it is finished. And with that comes the verdict on every dark power that exists, that darkness will be annihilated by the uncreated light of the world. And even as he died, the ground shook, the rocks split, the tombs were opened, and many dead were raised, Matthew tells us. Light shining in darkness. And in his own tomb, Jesus was laid in darkness. Had the word that became flesh come to nothing? No. Light bursts forth from the tomb in resurrection as Jesus the conqueror is risen. Life and light to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And his disciples came to see, even the most skeptical of them, that he is their Lord and their God, their savior and their deliverer, their light and their life, their hope and their salvation. And their testimony, their testimony, folks, was written down, those early followers, so that that news would come to us, to you and to me, so that we would be truly blessed because though we've not seen him with our eyes, the word has come and we've seen him through eyes of faith and can say, my Lord and my God of Jesus. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And there will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. He has come. He will come again. So today... Repent and believe. Look entirely away from yourself to the one who has acted decisively on your behalf and on mine and who will come again. Maybe for the very first time this morning, the call and the command for you is repent and believe. But maybe for the thousandth time, it's the same thing. We don't move on from there. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren says, repentance is our breathing out, faith our breathing in. Happens all the time. Repent and believe the word of God to you. Next week, we're going to gaze at the light and consider some of the names Isaiah gives to Jesus in that passage. But even now, he calls us to look to him, to hope in him, to turn to him, to hear his promise, to trust in him, and to have his light shine in your darkness. And as Andrew and the band comes up, we're going to respond together by singing of him. And let me finish with this from Galatians 1 and verse 3 to 5. This is the word that's to you today. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.